Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We take a look at Fernando Alonso's successful test at Indy, preview the Spanish Grand Prix, and answer some reader questions. We have plenty to talk about this week with Fernando Alonso's first test at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, a look ahead to the Spanish Grand Prix, and even some Autosport podcast listener questions for us to sort through for the first time. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport. Joining me first is Kevin Turner, the editor of Autosport magazine. Now, Kev, you've taken time out from Autosport Press Day to join this podcast, so what's on the cover that you've just sent off to the printers this week? Well, we're looking at the first four races of the F1 season so far to see what we, you know what have we learned. There was a lot of anticipation ahead of this season, new rules, a few new driver lineups. Um, we're looking back to see what uh, what the first four races have told us. Um, obviously, Ferrari on on a par with Mercedes, which is exciting for for everyone. Um, how Bottas is getting on? Why Red Bull and McLaren are, are struggling? Admittedly, at different levels, but neither of them are doing what they uh, what they want to. Or, arguably what they should be uh, and of course the midfield battle which is really really tight this year which uh, is easy to forget sometimes when you're looking at the front but it's actually uh, that's that's been pretty fascinating as well 
what else is there in there to read? Obviously, it's not just contemporary F1. No, we've uh, also taken the opportunity to look back at some uh, other uh, world champions returning for one-off Grand Prix. Uh, obviously, with Jensen Button coming back uh, to McLaren for Monaco, um, because Fernando Alonso obviously will be at, uh, at Indy. Um, so we looked uh, looked back at a few of those, um, and we've also, of course, had some big uh, big events at the weekend just gone. Toyota finished first and second at Spa in the World Endurance Championship, and we had quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of drama at Thruxton in the British Touring Car round. Well, plenty to read there then. That's out Thursday, and obviously you're obliged to buy the magazine if you're listening to this free podcast. Also joined by Scott Mitchell, the Autosport.com Plus editor. Now, Scott, you're preparing for a little bit of Formula E action in Monaco at the weekend. Obviously, there's been a bit of a gap again in the Formula E schedule, so can you electrify us and enlighten us on what we can expect at Monaco? Do you see why I did that? That was absolutely terrible. Seamless. Uh, Yeah, I'm off to Monaco this weekend. I'm really, really excited for that. It's uh, Monaco has been on my uh, personal bucket list for for years and years and years. So it's it's not quite Formula One, but I'm I'm happy to be uh, going there for its sort of electric cousin. Our first topic is Fernando Alonso, who will not be going to Monaco this year. He's going to be doing the Indy 500 at the end of the month. That adventure started with a test day at Indianapolis last week in the Orange Andretti Autosport run Dallara Honda. It was an interesting experiment i guess in terms of the the social media reach and the the online reach because you had two million or more more than two million in fact viewers watching the feed of a guy having a test at an oval which including is including three people around this table i assume exactly we were all keeping a very close eye on it that's that's astonishing really isn't it this story has massively captured the imagination hasn't it why do we think that is well alonso's a massive star for, to begin with isn't he he's uh been one of the best drivers in formula one for over a decade and he's been going through a patch where he hasn't been getting the results that he should have done. So I think there's a lot of people on his side. You know, if you've been winning Grand Prix and World Championships, you know, people would be a bit more like, oh, you know. But because he's the, the underdog, there's a lot of interest there. And then he's going into the the other world. You know, he's combining two worlds together in the F1. And the Indy 500 itself is massive. So you've got two pools of interest coming together. Both sides should be interested and fascinated by that story. Maybe it's also down to the fact that that car's a proper orange, isn't it? That's a it's a proper McLaren <laughs> orange. I think Jensen Button said something about that, didn't he? He made a joke in the in the wake of the of the livery being announced, you know, because there was all, all the talk this year about the F1 car, you know, embracing the the, the orange of McLaren's heritage. But it, it's not it's not papaya, is it? It's kind of like a glossy, not offset. quite there, is it? Bit bit weird. So you know, who knows if McLaren had put um, been a proper orange on its F1 car, maybe we'd have we'd have had two million people turning up to the circuit to Catalonia for pre-season F1 testing. I think that one's a little bit optimistic. It does show that this is a once-in-a-lifetime event in a way. It's so rare that this sort of thing happens. That's perhaps a little bit grandiose. But missing a Grand Prix, driving for what should be a top team but very much isn't a top team, going off to do Indy is just this incredible story. Nothing compares to it since. Mansell so it's not, I guess it's no great surprise that this has caught people's imagination it's great that Indy and McLaren have actually realized what the potential of this is because normally a test is you just turn up behind closed doors but they made this a media event well it's so unusual as well isn't it as you say if you if you go back you know 30 40 years a lot of the top drives of any given category would have done lots of other things there actually is still there's more of it than you think but in terms of the front guys your absolute top guys they tend to by necessity have to focus and specialize on a particular category f1 being the obvious one this is a great example of that not happening it's it, it counters that and i think that's uh you know that's captured a lot of people's imaginations i love the fact that they put so much effort into it when are you ever really going to 
properly pay attention to the build up to the to the Indy 500 or a guy who's you know tugging around at the back of the Formula One grid. This is a double world champion. He's going off to do what it doesn't get done. You don't skip the showpiece event of a Formula One season to go and do Indy 500. So the fact that they went you know above and beyond to put the people who care about this story and make them feel part of it that's the big thing for me. You know we live in what is the most sort of connected age of our you know human history. Uh, yeah, in motorsport terms, the way we use that extra connectivity these days through the internet and stuff is to go on forums and bash each other's series and say, oh, my series is you know, better than yours, F1 is this, WEC is that, Formula E is this, this, that and the other. And actually, you've got these tools at your disposal to just become more and more ingrained, like right down to the details of hearing Alonso give his first bits of feedback to, to the Andretti team on the pit wall. Like you can't get that. I mean, how how much would people have killed twenty, thirty years ago when you know Senna rocked up and did a test somewhere, or someone they went tested and, a Firebird in the ex- in the Penske? Yeah, exactly. So just imagine having having that insight. You know, that is you know unrivaled access. You know, no, motorsport fans throughout history have never had this before. So absolutely fair play to everyone involved for for, for giving them that platform. I would agree with that, but I also would also say that of course the American racing culture is much better at that anyway. So it's good that 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 McLaren and Alonso that they've they picked up on the American side rather than bringing a sort of slightly closed or F1 approach within IndyCar. So they're actually maximising the opportunity for people to get excited about it and, as you say, really see uh, what's going on. Because also, this will probably be, for some people, a bit of an introduction or a reintroduction to IndyCar. Um, so they'll almost be learning as Alonso goes along because they'll be paying more interest now than they would ever have done before. And we've got to be careful, obviously, because you don't want to turn around and say, well, this is the reason why we should you know, broadcast all F1 tests and stuff like that, because you know, it's very, very rare that you're going to have this kind of story to talk about. I think the lesson of this is that if there's something really interesting happening, make sure people can see it, can consume it, can watch it, can be a part of it. That's the key. Like you say, you can't make everything an event. Indianapolis broadcast all of practice live last year over the internet but was getting a few tens of thousands watching because fundamentally practice is is fairly dull but it was a a great opportunity to get people looking at Indy. It would be fascinating to know how many people who watched that had never watched a car go around an oval before. Uh, Alonso did a decent job as well. It wasn't the most trying thing you'll have ever done. Yes it was a completely alien world. The rookie orientation test is a fairly procedural, straightforward thing. He had to do 10 laps at 205 to 210 miles an hour, 15 laps at 210 to 215 miles an hour, and then 15 laps at above 215 miles an hour, which is fairly straightforward. The pole time last year was a uh, 230.946 mile an hour, should I say the pole speed, obviously that's how they do it on the ovals. His fastest of the day over the 110 laps was 222.548. He was about familiarising himself with it. He was doing bits and pieces like using the race day pit lane because you have to use the the practice pit entry through most of that. So he's familiarising himself with that, the communications, getting to know the car, the team. So that will really help him in terms of when practice starts on the Monday after the Spanish Grand Prix for the the two weeks that now is the the month of May for the Indy 500. Well, I think think we'd all be very surprised if Fernando didn't get into the ballpark of being competitive pretty quickly obviously the two big challenges he's going to have is to go really quick on an oval we need to trim out the wings so to start with they'll give him quite a lot of downforce and the car will seem really stable and great but it won't be very fast and obviously as he gets more confident they'll start taking the downfalls off and it will start getting more and more nervous and that's of course when he's going to have to be really careful because obviously if you're in the wall and you, you know you either injure yourself or you damage the car then that's the end of your running and of course the other thing which a lot of sort of oval experts have been talking about is running in traffic you can get the car to 
run perfectly well on its own but as soon as you're you know running side by side or immediately behind another car that really does affect the way that the car responds and that's actually what you've got to set the car up for he's already showing signs that he you know quote gets oval racing and i remember uh when i spoke to to dario franchitti last last year when um when max chilton was going over to to indycar racing for the first time Dario, in his first season, he said he was very hit and miss. You know, sometimes he'd he he would be really quick on ovals, but he wouldn't know why. He didn't really know sort of what he needed to get out of the car to go quickly, and that's going to be one of the big challenges for Alonso is obviously trying to get his car into a window where he knows what's working, why it's working, and that he can push as close to a hundred percent as possible without having to worry about ever overstepping the mark. So ticking those boxes early on in that test, and then starting to you know as you say trim out trim out the rear wing and that sort of thing and just get it all a bit more lively is, is really important he's watched a huge amount of material from the indy 500 as well already he's been watching races he's watched at least one full race from an onboard feed to get a feel for it apparently he's done some work in the delara simulator simulating wind conditions and that kind of thing you know fernando alonso is a really sharp guy he approaches everything in a very professional kind of way it's a bit reminiscent actually when mansell went to indycar in 1993 over the winter he did a huge amount of preparation involving watching videos getting to understand his rivals and his competitors and the the fascinating thing will be I think we can assume Alonso will be pretty competitive I think his pace will be decent he'll be in the mix in the race certainly as, as you'd say Dario Franchitti last Friday in an event at McLaren which was part of IndyCar's kind of European tour as they tried to talk up IndyCar and build on the interest generated by Alonso he said that Alonso probably will be shocked at how frenetic it gets in the closing stages the cut and thrust you know if you have everyone out relatively late caution everyone on fresh rubber really going for it to win the Indy 500 you can be quite polite earlier in the race but that's when the experience really counts knowing who you can take risks with who you can trust who's a little bit leery that's going to be the big unknown for Alonso well, let's head down the more demotivating line for Fernando Alonso. Obviously, before Indy, he's got the Spanish Grand Prix this weekend. We'll be looking forward to that. Fernando Alonso's 1,500-1 to 1 to win the race, 2,000-1 to 1 to be on pole. I'd say those are pretty poor odds, considering <laughs> how likely has to happen. And he's 500-1 to 1 even to be on the podium. I'm amazed at all, really. I suppose it could rain. Well, well I think even if it rains. Uh, yeah. I think, I think it's one of those ones. I did see an F3 race years ago at the Circuit de Catalunya where basically every single car crashed at the first corner. It was the the weekend and Andy Suchak won the championship. It was the most amazing thing, and the race wasn't red flagged. There were cars all over the gravel track. comfortably my favourite thing to share on YouTube. Let's look up at the front. We've had this great fight between Mercedes and Ferrari so far this year. It's two wins apiece for Ferrari and Mercedes. Sebastian Vettel leads the world championship. Now, going into Spain, again looking at the odds, Lewis Hamilton is still the slight favourite, 6-4 to four to win the race, with Sebastian Vettel at 13-8. to eight. And then you've got Russian Grand Prix winner Valtteri Bottas at 4-1, to one, Kimi Raikkonen at 11-1. to one. So the bookies are still leaning with Mercedes. Now, I should add that this, as this is a British bookie site I'm looking at, there will be a little bit of a bias towards Lewis Hamilton because there'll be a lot of home money, should we say, on that. But it's very close. And I think the fact that we're going there and we still couldn't say which one's definitely going to win is really positive for the season. Yeah, I think they've probably got those those odds about about right, really. You still kind of think that if Mercedes can get it together, they've had a couple of tactical errors. They're not quite working the tyres properly. But they do have fundamentally a good car. You know, they've only had three of the first four poles. You've got to think that Lewis Hamilton is very unlikely to have a weekend as poor as he had in Russia. Oh, that that will be as bad as it gets for yeah, Hamilton, no I mean, question. That, so he'll, he'll be back there. Bottas is obviously 
you know, cracked it, even though Sochi's always been a good track for him. I think I think though those those three are likely to be in the mix because Ferrari we know can get out qualified uh, at this season and still be in the hunt for the for victory. What we really want to see is Hamilton and Vettel not getting delayed, not making bad starts, and actually having a proper fight for it at the front because we kind of keep missing it this year one way or another. It's going to be difficult because Spain again will be a tricky circuit for that because overtaking there is really really difficult. The main overtaking spot tends to be into turn one, and because it's not a slow corner as such it's quite difficult to launch an attack there even with DRS assistance so I think we could see another Spanish Grand Prix that's all about track position probably be the biggest test so far of the of the new cars won't it because we were I think we were all braced at the start of the season for 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 an opening opening set of races that were that were quite underwhelming uh generally speaking the if you were if you were sensible about it and you get say okay we're switching to a formula that's more aerodynamically powerful than ever and more aerodynamically dependent then it doesn't really bode well for for following closely and close racing i've personally found the the first three races to be extremely entertaining and even in the russian grand prix which was boring for the majority it had a very good very good opening 30 seconds in the run to run down to turn two and then obviously it came good at the end i think that's key isn't it you can have two ways of an interesting race one is the obvious wheel-to-wheel battle cars overtaking each other and all the rest of it but actually as you say russia wasn't like that at all um, but you did have that thing right to the very end you weren't quite sure who's going to win between two different teams so i don't think every race has to be an overtaking fest to be interesting and that's why it's so great that ferrari uh, seem to have you know got their got their act together this year um, and we, we don't generally don't know going into this weekend which car will be fastest, never mind which driver's going to win. Ultimately, it's about the storylines, isn't it? Is there a storyline in the race? That's what people want to see, and I think there should be this weekend. Obviously, the new factor, should we say, is Spain is always a race where we see a quite big package of upgrades. Obviously, teams have bought bits and pieces to the early races, but this is big packages. Red Bull have talked up their package, a lot of new parts coming on it. Some people have characterised it as a new car. That's going a little bit far. But it's going to be a big step for Red Bull, and it needs to be. They're about 1.7 seconds off in qualifying in Sochi. It's, it's, been, gap, a, it? it's been a terrible start to the season for them. But Ferrari will have new parts. Mercedes will have new parts. Nicky Lauda, non-executive chairman, I think is his title of Mercedes, has said the season will start new. So there is kind of a reset point here and a chance for people to throw a lot of parts at the car. So are we expecting to see much of a, a reset in terms of the competitive balance between firstly the top two and then Red Bull's position relative to them. Well, this will be the test for Ferrari, won't it? Because last year, they got overtaken by Red Bull during the course of the season. Now, you could say, well, Red Bull started further back than they probably should have done, and maybe have done again this year. But now Ferrari have shown that they can produce a car that's up there with Mercedes at the start of the year. Can they throw enough bits at it, and bits that work, more importantly, uh, you know, to maintain that fight? That will be really key now. Um, and Spain will be our first real look at, at how the teams are doing on, on the upgrade front. Yeah, there are two things that I'm sort of particularly interested in. First is, again, building on what Kevin just said about it being the first test for Ferrari. You know, I I couldn't really shake the feeling at the start of this year that the quality of this year's car was a bit of a hangover from before James Allison left. My my gut feeling would be that you know Allison would have been heavily involved up to before the point of his departure, so there would have been quite a lot of work done there. And now... The big test is for the team that has replaced him. You know this so-called horizontal structure. Uh, is it Matteo Binotto is, uh, Matteo, is, is is in charge of? Yeah, Matteo Binotto, yeah. who was from the engine side, who's now technical director at Ferrari, with a little bit of assistance from Rory Byrne in a uh, consultancy basis, but 
Burn is not full time, so that this is Bonotto's technical team. Exactly. So this this technical team now has the um, let let's say for example it was a it was an Allison car to to whatever degree this is now Bonotto and his team's opportunity to show that actually you know, they're the guys that are going to take this car which was you know had a very good base to a title this year because obviously they're going to be the guys that are central to Ferrari keeping pace in the development race I would say the second thing that I'm looking forward to seeing this weekend is what Red Bull can bring to the table on in terms of you know aerodynamic up- upgrades what they can physically do to the chassis to halve the deficit because I'm presuming they can only halve the deficit because Daniel Ricciardo, Christian Horner, Max Verstappen, they've all said that the problem at the moment is as much to do with the car as it is the engine. They didn't have really an official deadline for the engine upgrade, but it looks like that's not going to be Montreal as originally targeted by the likes of the customer team Red Bull. So if that Renault engine is the same as what we've seen in the first four races, then how I, I can't see Red Bull making a, a big big step this weekend which is which is a shame because obviously you would say Red Bull you know Barcelona being a circuit that rewards high downforce cars obviously we saw Verstappen win on his debut there last year can't for the life of me seeing that get get repeated this well, weekend. Well they could make a big step in terms of performance couldn't they and still you wouldn't tell because they're so they're ahead of the midfield pack and they're quite a way off the front two so they might have a really significant upgrade and still be fifth and sixth. We're not going to see a dramatic change in terms of the the wider pattern I think we'll still see the two top teams up at the front it'll be interesting to see how things shift between them but uh, it's rare now that we see these dramatic massive swings in performance with upgrades all the teams are too good now because obviously let's say you've got a second to make up you don't only have to find a second you have to find what everyone else ahead of you has found plus a second it will be interesting to see how Force India get on though, because they've had some correlation issues, haven't they? Which yeah, they've been new floor they're hoping will will solve that. So, so it, they might, in a way, they should be the ones that make the most ground, partly because they've got a floor that they've been fighting, ha, and they're flawed sol- floor solving a floor with a floor. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but also because it's so tight in that midfield group, you know, they've done a fantastic job to 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 get the points that they have. Been. 100% points finishing record. They've yeah. got two cars on the points in all uh, four races. And, yeah, we'll get into this another time perhaps, but, but they've got two strong drivers at midfield pack, which quite a few of the other teams that they're fighting against do not have. So if they then bring an upgrade to the car, suddenly you could see them going, well, actually, they're going to be you know, seventh and eighth. They they do genuinely deserve massive credit because, okay, in a way, they've done a bad job because they've not built a very good car out of the out of the, out of the blocks. But what they've done, actually, in terms of executing the race operations has been superb. So you would you would hope that that's going to be rewarded by them going ah oh, we've we've recognised what was wrong now we're going to fix that and then oh, maybe they can target Red Bull if Red Bull don't make that step this weekend the Mercedes engine is good maybe we'll see Force India make a massive step forward who knows you used an interesting word there which is the word credit which is going to bring us on to our next point the financial payments to teams now Dieter Rankin a regular long time contributor to to Autosport a columnist always very much into the business and commercial side. He unearths things that others rarely do. And each year he has a, a good record of releasing the, the Formula One payments to teams based on the projections of their shares of revenue, etc. Now, to bear with me a little bit as I explain this, the revenues are paid on several things. Column one, which is so-called historic payments. If you're in the top 10 Two out of three years in the Constructors' Championship, you get the column one payment. That's an equal $36 million share each. So all of the teams apart from Haas are getting that. Column two is based upon the Constructors' Championship position of the previous year. So Mercedes gets $61 million US dollars for that. Ferrari was third, gets 41 down to 13 for Sauber in uh, 
10th place, having having Pitt Manor. And there's also a few other payments. Ferrari gets uh, $68 million for being a long-standing team, plus $35 million for being a former Constructors' Championship-winning team. The upshot of all of this is that if you look at the share of what is $940 million, everyone's sharing, Ferrari is the biggest earner, having finished only third last year, $180 million US dollars. Mercedes gets $171 million. Red Bull, $161 million. McLaren, 97 million, and Williams, 79 million. Now, those are all the teams are getting the extra bonuses. The remaining teams are all getting it based purely upon the historic payment and the previous year's constructors. So you've got Force India, 72 million, Toro Rosso, 59 million, Renault, 52 million, Sauber, 49 million, and then Haas gets 19 million for its position in last year's constructors. Now, that really does illustrate how uneven the, the revenue is. That is a classic case of the rich getting richer, isn't it? This is clearly weighted in favour of people who have been around the longest and have the biggest voice. You know, shout the loudest, you get the biggest slice of the pie. And uh, you know, maybe maybe sport's supposed to be cutthroat, maybe it's, this is supposed to be a dog-eat-dog world, but this is equal part sport and entertainment, Formula One, and I cannot understand how this sort of financial structure sort of promotes that. Well, I mean, you could have a debate about whether, um, you know, the teams that are winning should get more for the following year because you do end up with a situation where the rich get richer, but you also want a meritocracy where you do get reward for being the best. But this goes even beyond that because, uh, like Ed was saying, you know, Ferrari third in the construction championship last year gets the biggest payout because of this historical thing. So when you're up against that, you know, the, 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 the harshest comparison for me is Force India. Uh, in fourth in the Constructors' Championship on 72, one place behind Ferrari on 180. So how are they ever going to make the jump to the top three if they're that far that far down? You know, sp- spending does equal uh, equal that time to a degree. You know, it's, if we're all saying we want a sporting contest between as many teams as possible, this is a structure which basically mitigates against that. I don't, don't really understand sort of what Formula One's owners, what Liberty can sort of expect to achieve long term. This is... There's a lot of talk at the moment about what Liberty wants to do with Formula One and a lot of it's talked you know, in the context of what they can do for fans and stuff like this. The best thing they can do for fans is sort this mess out because if they sort this mess out, we actually might have a, a, a formula of Grand Prix racing that's actually sort of regularly entertaining, fairer and better across the board. Well, the window of opportunity for that will be after 2020. The current bilateral agreements that dictate these payments is basically signed, sealed, delivered to the end of 2020. So we'll have to see what happens in 2021 and beyond. But there's a lot of talk about Formula One groups spending more money on promotion and marketing. Well, okay, that's going to come out of the money that's being shared. And obviously, they're going to have their own stakeholders they want to give money to. So I think it would be a mistake just to automatically assume that Formula One group, as we should now call it, is going to be taking this really altruistic, sensible view to it. I think they'll take a more constructive view towards it, but the pressure cannot let up on them to create something that is a proper, sustainable, collective Formula One, shall we say. Because these things tend to go a little bit out the window when Ferrari sits down around the table and says, well, we think you need us more than we need you, so this is what we want. And McLaren does that, and Mercedes and Red Bull, and people start threatening to take their money away and their toys away and go elsewhere. So that's going to be a real test of their negotiating prowess. Well, let's move on to the listener questions now. Uh, we've had various uh, various questions come in via social media. If you'd like to ask a question of the Autosport podcast, just tweet us on at Autosport or use the hashtag AskAutosport. You can uh, direct some questions at us. Every now and again, we'll ask the question on Facebook as well. We reserve the right not to answer your questions, depending on how much there is to talk about. But it's always nice to have a little bit of listener interaction. 
So the first question is, do you think Valtteri Bottas will be a title contender? Or will this win be a flash in the pan like Heike Kovalainen's? That's come from Dennis Knight. Yes, I think he will be a title contender. Whether we will be this year is another matter. But I think I just certainly wouldn't say it was a, a flash in the pan that we saw in Russia. I'd like to say I don't remember Kovalainen having a flash in the pan either at all at any point. He won one Grand Prix when Felipe Massa blew up towards the end of the race. But he was a never... race in which Lewis Hamilton had a puncture as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's a shame because Kovalainen was a driver, well, it still is a driver with a wonderful level of ability, but perhaps not the mental robustness, should we say, to, to thrive in that environment. Hakey's a very, very good driver, but he just couldn't quite quite make it work. I think Valtteri's got a bit more to him in terms of the ability to withstand that. He's already passed his first test by getting a win. He's already out-qualified Hamilton a couple of times. He's won a Grand Prix. So in the first four races, he's done a pretty good job. He's also four races in. He's He's done something that we've didn't really see from Rosberg very much, which is absolutely destroy Hamilton over a Grand Prix weekend. I mean, we saw it maybe, what, maybe two times during Rosberg's title winning season last year, Baku in Singapore. The only, uh, from memory, they're the only two times I saw, especially last season, Rosberg properly have the edge over Hamilton from start to finish. And at Sochi, four races in, after getting his first pole last time out, Bottas is already, you know, it's a big tick for, for, for Bottas in terms of what he would have wanted to achieve early on. Well, also, I mean, there's not really a better way to win a Grand Prix, is there? Not only has he you know, completely thumped his Triple World Champion teammate, but he's then proved that he can cope with the pressure with, you know, a, a four-time World Champion bearing down. Now, of course, he did make that mistake and lock up and actually wasn't a million miles away from putting it in the wall, but he did recover. And when Vettel actually did arrive, you know, he, you know, he, he, he didn't do that. He did, he did what he needed to do. And I would expect him, to, I think I think the race before in Bahrain, where he was on pole, but then had a pretty appalling race, to be honest, that, that was that was the other end of the spectrum for Bottas. I'm much more expecting that the races during this year will be, tend more towards Russia. I don't think Lewis will be that weak again, frankly. That's the question, isn't it? At what point is he going to be able to beat Hamilton, who's having close to a very strong weekend, should we say, rather than being half a second off because Lewis Hamilton is he's one of the all-time greats. He's rarely going to struggle to that extent. Yeah, well, Ro- Rosberg couldn't really beat Hamilton when Hamilton was absolutely on it. But last year, a combination of factors, as we've discussed before, unreliability, Lewis not getting off the line, there were enough chinks in the armour and Rosberg was close enough, fair play to him, to take advantage. Um, and sort of Bottas has got to get himself into that into that position um, and certainly Russia was perhaps the first sign that, that that is a genuine possibility. So fairly simple answer to that question. He will be a title contender at some stage, Dennis. He's certainly not going to be a, a one-hit wonder. I'd be pretty sure Valtteri Bottas will win more Grand Prix in his career. Our next question comes from Chris Adams who says, I'm intrigued by the fascination of the triple crown possibility of Fernando Alonso. No one is mentioning Juan Pablo Montoya being two-thirds of the way. There's a fairly simple answer to that in that he isn't doing Le Mans, which is the one he's missing, so he's not really relevant to this debate, but wouldn't that be great to see Montoya getting a, a Le Mans drive with a shot of adding to his, his Indy and Monaco wins? Yeah, he's one of the great modern, versatile drivers, isn't he? Because remember, he managed to win in NASCAR as well, so as well as F1 and Indy, he's done a bit of NASCAR, and yeah, he's a yeah, he's sort of great character to have around. You've got to think he's probably past his best now, so to go and win Le Mans would require, well, you always need luck to win Le Mans, of course, but... Nobody not- past their best has ever won Le Mans. <laughs> well, now we, that's a whole podcast in itself, I think. Um, so, yeah, it'd be great to see him there. And frankly, I'd like to see Alonso there after he's won the Indy 500. 
that's the one thing that's a bit of a shame that both Toyota and Porsche have said there's no space for Alonso in the, in the foreseeable future in their team. There's only five cars, basically, that can win Le Mans, three Toyotas and two Porsches at the moment. <laughs> that's well, don't, well, don't forget with Montoya, we, we, we were teased by the fact that he took part in that Bahrain test, didn't he? But, yeah, in 2015. But that, and but the problem with that was obviously the shelving of the third car. Just if there was ever anything on the cards, that was immediately lost by the fact that, well, unfortunately, that's not going to be sort of on the radar. I know Toyota have done it for, for this season with the third car, but until until someone takes a punt, and the, the thing is, someone like Toyota, they're going, they're, they're, they're adding that third car to try and sort of boost their chances, and you're not going to just sort of chuck in a driver on a sort of sentiment, a sentimentality, are you? You're going to, you're going to, go to win <laughs> absolutely well, I think Alonso's got more of a chance because he's obviously got so much uh, clout at McLaren he might say to them right okay chaps right, let's go and make an LMP1 car now get Gordon <laughs> Murray on the phone yes <laughs> realistically it's not impossible Montoya could do it Alonso is probably a more likely shot to get the triple crown which is a strange thing to say given he's only won one of the races but Montoya would need to get into a top car at Le Mans and actually be able to win the race he has won the daytona 24 hours so uh so he's getting there but could we, montoya could we, put, is, could we put montoya into a clearwater ferrari or something and get him to win gte am well talking of the triple crown there is some debate isn't there because we've had some correspondents eloquently arguing that the triple crown should not contain the monaco grand prix but the formula one world championship which would bring others into it jack villeneuve for example who's won the indy 500 won the world championship not the monaco grand prix finished second at le mans so he's almost there but my personal view of that is it's a triple crown of race wins, so it's coherent for it to be three individual races, yeah, sure. That, I mean, to me, that's nonsense. Though, if you're going to do that, then it has to be the Formula One World Championship, the IndyCar Series, and the World Endurance Championship, or whatever version well, of the World Endurance Championship uh, exists. I mean, I, I, I do agree with that, but I think it kind of partly comes from this, from the, from the Graham Hill... Because I think he's actually quoted as talking about the Triple Crown as a. As well, the, he made it up basically. Exactly, it's, but this is your point about it being a nebulous concept, isn't it? Really, it's not. It, it's it's not really anything. It's you know, we like talking about it because you pick out the the big races, um, and it makes much more sense that it's that it's a single race from each thing. Well, it's um, the showpiece events, isn't it? That's the point. Yeah. It's like if that's the, that I, I I like it. We we have that this idea that these are the these are the races that respectively are they're the jewels in their respective crowns. And so, for ex- I presume that this uh, this glorious triple crown of which we speak has sort of uh, you know three rubies at the front, and it's Indy 500, Le Mans, and the Monaco Grand Prix. Well, in fairness, you, the one thing you could say about, and by the way, of course, with Alonso, it doesn't actually make any difference anyway because he's got both Monaco Grand Prix wins and World Championship to his name, so it doesn't really matter from Alonso's point of view. But I think you could make an argument for Indy 500. He's so obviously the biggest Indy car race by a mile. Le Mans is the sports car race, you know. It it basically maintains sports car racing even when the World Championship died. It's that big. Is Monaco going to be quite that big in the F1 calendar? I don't think it is, but it's probably the closest thing that we've we've got to it in the sort of wider world. I think it is in terms of the perception on the outside. Yeah. If you speak to the proverbial man on the street that's always being cited, yeah, the Monaco Grand Prix is the one. Images that is of on the harbour and stuff like that. Plus the fact that it still maintains that sort of spike in popularity, even though nowadays it goes up on the same weekend against massive events like the Indianapolis 500 and the World Rallycross Championship round at Lyndon Hill. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Rallycross has been mentioned by Scott Mitchell. This that was is, seamless. This, this was inevitable. <laughs> this was inevitable. But it'd be great to see Montoya having a crack at it. He'd have a shot. He's one of, I think, six drivers who've won two of the Triple Crown events. The others are Tazio Nuvolari, Maurice Trantignon, AJ Foyt, Bruce McLaren and Jochen Rent. I can't see any of those five adding to it, although I wouldn't put it past AJ Foyt, even at his age. He's uh, a pretty remarkable one. You could see him turning up at the Monaco Grand Prix and showing everyone <laughs> the way. <laughs> but, yeah. 
I'm, str- I'm struggling a little bit with that, but absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I don't rule a anything to- out where I'm Total legend, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's fair enough. <laughs> Well, how about we? Why don't we put Montoya, Alonso, and Jensen Button in an LMP1 car? Come on, fun. Ed, you can you can arrange this. You're important and all that. You raise the budget. I'll put it together. <laughs> I'll leave the budget to Scott. <laughs> so, next question from Geordie Pugh: Should tire warmers be banned across all of motorsport? Yes, brilliant idea. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, I one of the things I like in uh, in in Formula E, going back to my little um, world of electric racing, um, I I like the fact that these cars aren't particularly quick, but they're really really difficult to drive. And part of that is obviously the they've got all weather tires, so I don't think the tires offer sort of like a particular you know particularly high peak of grip. But also the fact that they don't have uh, they don't have tire warmers means that the that the, the guys are going out there on uh, on on cold tires and and and, and cold brakes, and it's hard to get the, the the temperature into them. It's one of the nuances of driving a Formula E car. You obviously in Formula E it's, it's particularly special because you're ad- adding that to the fact that they're on. Uh, bumpy dusty street circuits that you know with the exception of one or two places never get used so it's not like there's banks of banks of data to to go off of so it is difficult on its own but it's just that it's that extra little bit that just makes it a little a bit bit trickier and you've got to, you've got to know sort of you've got to know how to to sort of react to that and, and it tests drivers to to get things right in practice nail it over one lap in qualifying be quick on the first couple of laps of the race and the first couple of laps of a stint it, I, I think it's just a, a good extra challenge yeah absolutely it provides another opportunity for a driver to make a difference doesn't it when uh, because you know some people can just nail it straight away actually i think that'd be the sort of thing that lonzo would be very good at on the first lap you can imagine get, getting stuck in there i imagine lewis would be pretty good at it as well um and other drivers being a bit more attentive you see a bit more overtaking perhaps um you might see a few more incidents of people making mistakes but you know, it's also, of course, it would save a bit of money not having tire warmers as well. Let's just use something from this year as an example. Go back to the the Bahrain Grand Prix and uh, the 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 restart when uh, Ricardo was on soft tires and he couldn't get them up to temperature. And he went from sort of oh, being in the position. What's he going to do? Is he going to get into the into into you know the mix with the you know the the lead battle here? You know, what where can he put his car? And then all of a sudden he's swallowed up by you know Ferrari, a Mercedes, and a and a Williams. And it's just like oh, he just he just couldn't do it, and that's not necessarily that's down to, a, to perhaps a quirk of the the tire and the way his car works, but ultimately you got to deal with it. And you imagine if you had that story multiplied by twenty across the entire grid. Well, if you look at it, the, the drivers and the engineers. In fact, this was something Nico Rosberg was very good at. I think is why he could sometimes get on top of Lewis Hamilton in in qualifying. Is that when everything's optimized, they know where the limits of the car are, and it's when you have to improvise whether it's wet, something's changed, wheel to wheel. And this would just be another example of, oh, we're not quite sure where the car's at, and you've got to sort of make it up, improvise a bit as you go along. I think the interesting thing is that this has been discussed in Formula 1 a few times. I can think of at least three separate occasions when a tyre warmer ban has been discussed or even tentatively agreed over the past seven or eight years in Formula 1. And the problem always is that it's done on a bit of an ad hoc basis because the tyres are designed to work with tyre blankets. So what they actually need to do is say, right... Four years down the line, we're going to get rid of the tyre blankets. And then the tyre manufacturer has the time to work towards them rather than kind of coming up with this quite a good idea and then implementing it badly because you've got tyres that you wouldn't have a chance of getting up to temperature. But it would also eliminate some of the black art of the way you cook the tyres, etc., as it were, and cure them. There's a lot of science in that. It's really, uh, really difficult to know how to get the tyres prepped correctly and it's an area the top teams work on so it would eliminate that as well and it would create a distinct driver influenced variable in deciding the outcome of races so I think it's a, 
I think it's a good idea. It just has to be implemented properly rather than at random. Our next question is from Dennis Keskin, who hopefully I've got his name right, who asks, have Roman Grosjean and Nico Hulkenberg, who he calls two of the best talents of their generation, missed their chance ever to fight for a title? Uh, Grosjean looks vulnerable at Haas and the Hulk faces a long walk back to the top with Renault. Will they ever reach the summit? I'd say Hulkenberg's actually facing his, his best chance, isn't he? he? He's not really had the break he's, he's needed, but he's finally aligned himself to a to a factory team. And okay, Renault's not there at the moment, but outside of the the big the big three, um, you've got to say Renault looks is probably better place at the moment to do to to, to put together a, a a title challenging car and engine combination than say McLaren Honda. Um, on on the other side, Roman Grosjean. I, I was a big fan of Grosjean uh, up against Raikkonen at. At, at Lotus, and I, I felt that he was maturing into this guy who was capable of of, of big things if he got the right opportunity. But to be honest, since he's been at Haas, I know he delivered big at the start of last year, but I didn't really feel like he completely hammered Gutierrez over the remainder of the season. And my main thing about him this year is... You know, Magnussen's looked quite good. Grosjean was nowhere at Sochi, and as I think has since, has since admitted that a lot, of, as much of that was down to him as it was him not being able to find the right balance in his car. And just from sort of anecdotal evidence, I've heard from people that have gone trackside. He constantly moans about the brakes, but I've heard that you know someone should tell him that he's braking later than anyone else is at, at certain parts of the track. I think that was a phrase that Gary Anderson quite liked to use in, in pre-season testing. I don't quite see in Grosjean now what I saw sort of two or three years ago, whereas Hulkenberg, I kind of only see an upward trajectory. I pretty much agree with that. I mean, I think I felt very sorry for... I'm a bit of a fan of Hulkenberg, and I, I felt sorry for him when he, he went for Renault and then almost instantly Nico Rosberg retired, and you thought, oh, he probably would have been on... He'd have been on the shortlist for that drive, surely. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, um, they, they did make an inquiry, and, and that I think would have been. And that's nothing against Bottas, who I think he's also deserved a chance in the midfield. If you you probably picked those two as the guys that did, but the Renaults made such a big progress this year because let's face it, they were they were right at the back last year at times. And he's you know he's clearly you know he seems to be thriving in the environment. He's not got to worry about you know his teammates so much. He can focus on driving. That he's the obvious number one. Um, the team it's not that long ago. From a team perspective, it's a long time ago for Fernando Alonso. But from a team perspective, it's not that long ago that they won or fighting for championships. So, yeah, my hope would be that, that that they can they can get there. We need more teams at the front. And Grosjean, yeah, he's just too he's too inconsistent, isn't he? He'll be absolutely sublime. He's all a bit Carlos Reutemann-y. He can sublime one weekend and be absolutely amazing, and then just completely anonymous the next. I think Grosjean is he's a difficult one. Obviously, Haas have had a few problems with getting the most out of the car. That's maybe accentuated a bit. I think the way he communicates over the radio maybe exaggerates it a little bit, but he does have this problem with having a very clear idea of how he wants the brakes to behave. The old ART school of brake hard turn in aggressively, which you can't always do. So he needs to understand and adapt to that in order to get the best out of himself. When he can, he drove extraordinarily well in the second half of 2013. Some of the best drives we've seen in Formula 1 in the past decade during that period. So... I suspect probably the ship has sailed for Grosjean in terms of he's missed a shot at Ferrari. You never say never, but 31, perhaps he's going to have to rely on circumstances helping him to the front. But Hulkenberg, yeah, with Renault, he has actually got a trajectory that could get him to the front. He's still only 29, so he's got a, sort of a couple of years on Grosjean, which is, which is helpful in terms of the time he's got to go. So maybe we see Hulkenberg competing for the Triple Crown. He's already done Le Mans. Of course he has. And one very, very quick point on, on Grosjean, which is obviously sort of moving away uh, a, a little bit from this, but 
we've obviously talked about Alonso and sort of what's going on with him at the moment. And I know one of the big talking points is obviously if he left McLaren, what would McLaren do? Because the top, of the top line drivers, who's going to want to go there? Well, Boulier is a bit of a fan of Grosjean, isn't he? Obviously worked very closely with him before and was constantly challenging Grosjean, you know, sort your head out and you're, you're going to be mega. I know, and I think he backs him. It would be worse bets, wouldn't there, you know, for, for, for Grosjean and McLaren if, if that was a union that would work? You'd always go for the driver who's got the pace and the potential to deliver something extraordinary over the one who you know is a good, solid, reliable performer. Bouillet was able to get the best out of him. He really helped him revive his career, Grosjean, after his initial foray into Formula 1 in 2009 when he had a part season with the Renault team. Yeah, Bouillet knows what he can do and knows how to get the best out of him. So that's an option because if you're a, a team that's not performing at the highest level, you do sometimes have to cut your cloth accordingly and end up signing a driver maybe who is either unfulfilled for a reason or could could do better or needs the right environment in order to deliver. So that's that's not impossible. Can we move on to emissions and fuel consumption now? Always, always. Johnny Punder has asked, do you think the next F1 engine should have set emissions and fuel consumption regulations rather than capacity, etc.? Now, obviously, a few years down the line, we've got the new engine regulations, which have to be low-cost, road-relevant, sensible, so that they can be a level playing field. Kev, you can have this one. <laughs> I think it's a very interesting question. I think people that just want big, loud V12s, it's all its all very good, but that is not where technology and road uh, road cars are going. Bring you back want, Super League for Well, if you, if you want to see that, go and watch the historic race meeting. Um, where the That's cars your are, answer to everything. Uh, well, to, to many. But no, I mean, it, it, I think... I was talking to, to, to an, uh, you know, an engineer on this... Uh, and his suggestion was quite interesting. That the fuel consumption, you, you you say that where F1 went with the fuel consumption formula was right, but they shouldn't have limited the flow. So you could, he said that that would then give you all sorts of different options during the course of the race. So somebody might be quick at the beginning, quick at the end, in the middle, whatever. It would give you more variables, which means that you have cars that were quicker at different points of the race, which is effectively what we introduced with Pirelli's that you know, degrade and, and he thought that would be good for the racing while also encouraging the technology. And then as the teams get better and better at that, um, then you give them a bit less fuel for the following season. So, yeah, I think that, that, that fuel consumption emissions, good for driving the technology, less of an issue in terms of F1 itself because the emissions it puts out are minuscule. And the engines are actually incredibly efficient. The same guy was telling me they are, even the internal combustion engine of an F1 car now, without all the bits on, is more efficient than the Toyota Prius engine. That gives you an idea of how far they've got. But yeah, absolutely, I think that, you, that, that that should definitely be part of new rules. Just as a note on the fuel flow, the FIA's argument on the fuel flow and the reason that regulation was introduced was to avoid ridiculous discrepancies in power because you could have an engine configuration that just puts out ridiculous power and end up with very big end of straight speed differentials. That's their argument. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying that's the reason. I think engineers would very quickly work out that that wasn't the optimum way of doing it. I think that there would be a bit of... Eventually, of course, all variation disappears because evolution tells you that there is the best way of doing it. But I, I suspect we're not. you wouldn't have one car with 1,600 brake horsepower and another one with 300. I just don't think that the, the, the disparity would be that great. But then I'm not an engineer, so, you know. I agree on uh, on the points about fuel consumption. I think that's the most sort of interesting bit. Um, in Johnny's question, the problem with for me with with Formula One, maybe, maybe motorsport in general, is we're we're incredibly lucky to 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 work in this environment. But it is a bubble, and does it often try and sort of exist in isolation to the rest of the world? But you've got to reflect what's going on in the wider world. But also, you do does still have a responsibility to to the wider world as well. And Formula One, 
can be a showcase for manufacturers to 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 nail really complex technology technology that will actually make a, a, a difference and i think if you can have a situation where you can you build build a uh, an electric powertrain in formula e or you know this incredible hybrid uh, system you know power regeneration system in, in 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 wec or a turbo hybrid in formula one whatever if you can do something where and you can physically you know, provide a tangible sort of way of showing to the, the public you can do this on such little fuel you know before we were using this much now we're using 10 percent less 15 percent less whatever that's totally relevant you certainly want to have emissions regulations there's no question about that you don't want to be putting who knows what out there ideally you want to be developing some relevant technology and fuel consumption has to be part of that but i think what you need to do you have to have your key elements in mind when you spec it cost needs to be part of that if you want it to be road relevant, which they say they do, or what the, what do the manufacturers want to work on? You know, you could say, as one proposal, have a spec internal combustion engine produced by, for want of argument, Cosworth, and then you build the energy recovery system ancillaries onto it. However, you want to do it, you know, there, there's all sorts of ways you can you can set that up. But I think it's important to actually understand what it should be first. But I certainly agree you don't want to be using ridiculous amounts of fuel because that's just out of step with what the world is doing. And actually, it's nice to have the noise, but I think over time that's going to be less of a thing for people. Yeah, you lose that initial smash-you-in-the-face wow factor with it when you first see the cars, but there's also more texture to the sound. And in general, talking about motorsport as a whole, noise is a big problem. Now, how many circuits have difficulties with running because of the noise, etc., from the engines? I don't know that we've really answered that, but I do think, I think, yes, emissions and consumption needs to be part of it. I think just setting a capacity and off you go is is a very old school way of doing it. I think we need to be more elaborate than that. But that's that's a big question for, for Osborne and his team to, to solve, hopefully fairly quickly. We need to have a, a reasonably clear direction on this in the next, uh, next year or so. The next question is from Jim Rogers. Uh, if Alonso were to somehow win the championship in 2018, it would be a new record for gap between titles. Would a third title after 12 years be as glorious as he hopes, or would it always be qualified as a sad anomaly in the history of the sport? That'd be glorious, wouldn't it? It would be like the the the, the perfect because you've got to think that by that point, 2018, you're looking at the you know the conclusion of his Formula One career, and what a way for for that story to end. It's been a it's been adversity after adversity almost for the for the last decade so for it to finally come good after just got to be the most trying period in uh, in in his professional career the last three seasons he must feel like he's been wasting his time imagine if that turned around and he was able to deliver a title title next season that that would be, i think it'd be fantastic it'd be a brilliant story absolutely i think the sad anomaly will be as which is much more likely that he'll retire with two world championships which i think is just absolutely outrageous and not not befitting of his abilities um but yeah it would be it would be, it'd be fantastic reward for him cons- you know keeping that motivation that you were talking about earlier scott of um still driving as hard as he can and putting out these amazing performances for maybe 10th it would be a great way to end really wouldn't it he wants the third world championship i don't think he's too worried about getting too many more when he's talking about doing indy he said well the way to show i'm a great driver would be to win eight world championships, one more than Michael Schumacher. Well, even he knows that's pretty unlikely. Even the third one is looking a bit of a long shot at the moment. So he said, well, I can't win eight championships, so I'll have to try and do the triple crown. But a third Formula One world championship, if he can get into the car to do it, maybe it'd be a McLaren Honda. Could it be a Renault? That's an interesting question. But I think I don't think it would be 
in any way a sad thing. I don't think anyone would look at that gap. I think it would just be, wow, what a journey. Normally the journey to the World Championship is from the start of the career to finally realising that dream. But if anything, Alonso's had a whole second journey. It's like it's the sequel, the journey from that second World Championship in 2006 where he thought he was going to win four, five, six, seven, eight World Championships to the point where finally he can win one again. I'd, I'd absolutely love to see it. I think well, I think most most people would, wouldn't they? Most fans would love it just to be just for him to be in the fight. Really, and it's easy to forget that if he'd score eleven more championship points at the right time, and he'd be five-time world champion, and maybe he'd have switched to IndyCar permanently, won Indy five hundred by now, and now be doing them on. Yep, now he'd be trying to tick off the Bathurst thousand. Oh, <laughs> there was a there was a comment that that Button made last last year after retiring early from the from the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, where. He he kept being asked sort of what it was like to 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 end his career that way, and one of the things Jensen kept saying was that you know the result today was never going to change anything for me. Um, you know, I've won a world title, I've won these many races, great career, blah blah blah. And I think there was a few people were sort of it, even the questions he was being asked was just sort of you know do you have any regrets? What do you take home? And he's saying you know like I I had my had my chance to win a world title, I took it. I won a few races. Maybe I could. Maybe I could have won a few more. But I don't. You know, I have no regrets. That sort of thing. I cannot imagine Alonso saying the same thing when he stops. I just. It just. It just doesn't sit right. There are some people where you just go right. Yeah, you've won a world like Button, for example, who I personally am a massive fan of. I grew up when I was carting myself, looking up Button was my first. I would say my first sporting idol. Um, but one world title, I sort of go, yep, yeah, that's that's brilliant. I don't think you were like one of the greatest ever. But you're a driver who I think deserved a crack at the world title and fair play for you for taking it. Raikkonen, one world title, I'd say in terms of pure ability compared to Button, you know, you, I'd be I'm, if someone had said to me 10 years ago or 11 years ago, he's only ever going to win one world title, I'd, I'd have said that's, that's just wrong. And exactly the same as Alonso. Who could have thought at the end of the 2006 season when he's moving to McLaren that that was probably going to be the last time he ever was spoken of as the world champion? not a world champion. I, I just, it just sits really, really oddly with me that someone of Alonso's ability is probably going to end with two titles and nothing more. But then actually thinking about it, Jim Clark was only a double world champion. He's still regarded as one of the, well, some people say the, the greatest of all time. And that was circumstances, not quite the same, but in an era when, when reliability hurt you more. I think that you know, Alonso's done enough that he's going to be considered one of the absolute greats yeah, of all time, but yeah, I agree that, that because of that, two two titles doesn't really do him justice. Well, to, to butcher a butcher a pop culture reference, you know, in this situation for a you know double Formula One world champion, you either die a hero or you live long enough to for people to feel sorry for you that you only won two world titles. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. And, and there's always this element of show us your medals, isn't there? You know, I think you'll want to have that third world championship. Put some up there with Santa Hamilton. Always said the third world championship was the was the big one for him, and I think it is a a big deal for Alonso as well. Now, a final question, which is actually a question about autosport. This comes from Lewis Jones. I'm excited by this one. I saw this earlier and thought, oh, I can't wait to get into this. Excellent. We're looking forward to a high-quality answer then, Scott. Uh, Lewis's question is, other than the obvious takeover of the internet as being the tool for sharing news, what are the most apparent and hard challenges facing a traditional news outlet, such as yourselves, when it comes to adapting to changes in the modern world? Do you look back and wish that Autosport was able to run as it did in days of old, or do you embrace the future despite its uncertainty? Now, before I get Scott and Kev on this, I just have to add, I would say I would say we've moved a bit with the times. We've got a successful website, autosport.com, with a, with a paywall model that is necessary for us to operate the website and works well for us. So we've kind of tried to embrace the, the digital age. So I wouldn't say we are a, 
a fully traditional one. We're a traditional news outlet, shall we say, by history. But Autosport.com's been up and running for almost 20 years now. So I would say that's the first thing we've... That's one of the, the big things where we have moved. If Had the website not been started all those years ago, which is before the time of any of us in this room, the website was a few years old by the time I joined, I think it would have been very different. But obviously there's a much bigger question there than... Uh, than that so let, let's start with Scott you were very eager I hope you've prepared a speech I, I would say the, the the most apparent and hard challenge fa- facing being a news outlet these days is maintaining integrity and patience in the face of a completely different working environment to before the immediacy of the internet in the modern age makes it really really difficult for some some people mo- most people probably to just sort of calm down a little bit when there's a big story or you're chasing something that's contentious on, on television for example where you know the, the news is always on you don't just have weekly deadlines or monthly deadlines or whatever you know you're, you're, you're always you're always live you're always reacting and certainly working on autosport.com is, is like that you 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 do face a bit of pressure to to to, to get news out there as as live but you, you can't trip over the hurdle of sacrificing quality for speed if you can be first, great, but you've got to be right, got, whatever you've got, happens. You've got to be right, and, and and that's what I mean by maintaining integrity. Uh, the, that's what I love about Autosport, working for Autosport, is if it, it feels like people believe that we have maintained that 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 level of integrity, and and it is it is very difficult. The 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 way the way we work is we as you as you pointed out, Ed, you you've got you've got to be quick, but but you've 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 got to be right. And leading into sort of the, the second half of the question. You know, do I wish it was as as it was back in the day, or do I embrace it? I, I I love the challenge of doing that. I I want to be, I want Autosport to be, the 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 voice the voice of of honesty and and clarity at a time when the 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 news feed is is clogged up for with with tweets with 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 rumor gossip or you know there is such an important role to play. In, in the media, and, and this goes beyond just the motorsport uh, media as well. In, in general, when there's so much, you know, disinformation that is readily available. I guess the big thing that people always talk about when it comes to the magazine, Kev, is people say, oh, why wasn't it like it was in 1980 when it was much better, etc., etc., etc. You know, I've been editor of the magazine in the past and uh, had exactly the same thing. And I think every autosport editor, actually, going back a long time, has always had the, why don't you do it like it was in the past? And obviously, we get the discussion about why it's almost universally F1 on the cover, etc. Why they want more coverage of XYZ Championship, etc. So that's an interesting thing about the changing world and the changing motorsport landscape. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. And I would say, they're, they're kind of from the magazine point of view, which I kind of feel like that question is actually sort of directed at the magazine. Um, I think, first of all, yes, obviously, if we weren't, if we didn't have the internet, then the magazine would sell more because all magazines would sell more without the internet. Um, and, you know, it would be easier to work on because you wouldn't be, when you had a news story, you would have longer to chase. You wouldn't have the, that thing of, like Scott was talking about, trying to get it up there accurately, but but rapidly online. However, it also opens up a huge amount of opportunities. So, for example, we get much more live and relevant data from the website, which can then inform, hopefully, to a certain degree, what we should be writing about um, and what people are interested in. Um, But also, I think that there's a certain level of gratification that comes from, actually, we're doing the same thing. Because if you're doing your proper news chasing, you're speaking to the right people, you're in the paddocks, that's the same job that it was 20 30 40 years ago you're trying to convey what is important whether it's 
by the day or by the week what what are the relevant things and interesting things from a, for a motorsport fan and we've just got more ways of disseminating that information now so it, it's it's difficult for the magazine but as a brand i think it's very exciting yeah the mode of delivery evolves and changes the taste of the audience change but it's all about it's all about adapting i always think it's great to be in a in a moving world people get very fearful about disruptive technologies in any business and like everything this is a business so i, I actually think it's really interesting to adapt to the way things change and i love the understanding we've got of reader habits etc the, the things we've learned from having having the website running well it's, it's also worth remembering that, and this is actually applies to the magazine and motorsport and probably actually life in general is that the people always say it was better back then but then is a very non-specific time it's basically and it, it's always different when you when you start probing autosport it, magazine was much better under the last editor yeah no, he was brilliant um <laughs> A brief tenure, but brilliant. Um, I was just but, too good. I had yeah, to move on to a higher plane. <laughs> um, but yeah, so a lot of people, I mean, I think we're, you know, we're probably, this is true of all of us in this room, is that you, know, you get interested in motorsport at a particular age. So that tends to be, I'm a bit weird because I went back for further when I discovered motorsport. But generally, the, the, when you, you're, you're sort of a kid, early teens, you get interested in something, whether it's music, motor, you know, sport, whatever, that's the year you think, yeah, that's when it was really mega. And then anything, as you get older and you, you learn more and things change, like, oh, it's not like it used to be. But really what that was was just a snapshot of how it was at a particular moment. Um, and it was different for the people growing up 20 years early and it will be different for the people growing up 20 years later. So, yeah, the, the, the changing, the, the moving with that change is important. I think we've let everybody see quite enough behind the curtain of autosport. But that was an excellent question. So thanks for that one, Lewis. It's an interesting topic and one we talk about a lot. And while we're talking of curtains, it's probably the time to bring the curtain down on this podcast, which has been an interesting chat. What do we reckon about this reader's questions, Lark? It's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, I like, I like it. The idea. I'd like yeah, some more. It's good. Definitely have some more. Um, more historic racing questions, please. Porsche 917, that's always good. Yeah, more formulary questions. Or rallycross, because we want to keep rallycross. Scott happy. Yeah, let's have some Lydon Hill um, questions. Or butterflies, if Stuart's here. Stuart Codling. Next time, next time someone needs to ask me what I think about the World Rallycross Championship moving away from Lydenhill to Silverstone. So, oh, that's a good question. No, send me your question on a postcard. I'm going to make sure if we do talk about Rallycross, you're not on that particular podcast. Just can my dad you. come in for that podcast? He can come in if he wants. Excellent. So that's my dad. Watch, watch. He can't speak. Yeah, exactly. He, can, he can watch from the packed <laughs> viewing gallery. Uh, any- Hi, Dad. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, if you have any questions, hashtag Ask Autosport or tweet us on at Autosport. We'll be happy to try and fit in a few questions. It'll depend on what, what else is on the agenda, but we're, we're happy to try and tackle topics and specific questions you have. So thanks very much, uh, Kevin Turner, Autosport Editor, Scott Mitchell, Autosport Plus Editor, and thanks for myself, Ed Straw. Obviously, you can check out Autosport Magazine on Thursday with all the goodies that Kev was talking about earlier on. Check out autosport.com for all the news and latest features. We've got loads of coverage of the Spanish Grand Prix weekend coming up. Subscribe to the podcast as well via iTunes or various other podcast platforms. We're there just about anywhere you could hope to find us. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.